Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Many of you who follow this podcast are probably wondering about the outcome of Million Dollar May. If you're listening for the first time, let me give you a little background. A while back, I started a business that assists other businesses in telling their own stories. That solves a huge problem at just the right time. Think of all the information a business must compete with these days in order to get its message across. I read on the internet that 90% of all the data produced in the history of the world has been created in the last two years. Every minute of every day, roughly 4 million YouTube videos are watched, a half million tweets are sent, and a hundred million spam emails land in inboxes. Without even realizing it, we're all looking at 10,000 brand images a day. How do you cut through all that clutter? There's one proven way, the old school way, with an authentic story. It's the story that makes people lean in. It's the story that grips people. It's the story that endures. And if a company can't tell its story and cut through all the clutter so that people will know about it, how will it even exist? Well, I've been telling stories for decades now. I knew I could help companies grip their authentic stories and use them to get where they want to go. That wasn't an issue. The issue for me was that I'd never run my own business before. For decades, I'd seen myself as a writer. Everything I did was on my own. I had no idea how I would function as a CEO. For example, delegating was completely foreign to me. As a writer, everything I needed to do, I did myself. Now I was in new territory. I had to learn so many things. Even though folks like Frank Blake, chairman of the board of Delta Airlines, assured me that I'd be a good CEO because of the way I look at questions, I was unsure if I had the skill set to delegate and manage other people in order to execute a vision. That's when I was challenged with a question. It came to me over dinner after an entrepreneur had listened to all my fears on the day before speaking engagement in Fort Worth, Texas. Callie said, what is it that Larry King and Tim Ferriss see in you that you don't see in yourself? Well, that flipped the gigantic red switch inside me, the grand gesture switch. It accessed that side of me that has gotten in the ocean with an 18-foot tiger shark without a cage. It touched the side of me that has gone off to fight Julio Cesar Chavez when he was junior welterweight champion of the world with 87 wins, no losses, and 75 knockouts. I'm still here to talk about it. And it reached a side of me that learned all about wine from scratch in order to become the sommelier at Windows of the World restaurant for a night so I could write a story about it. And I was the sommelier in that restaurant atop the World Trade Center shortly before 9-1-1. What do others see in you that you don't see in yourself? That's a great question for anyone to ask oneself. The night after that question was thrown at me, I referenced it in the middle of my talk to Entrepreneurs Organization in Fort Worth. And I declared that as CEO of my company, I would take on the challenge and that my business would generate a million dollars worth of new revenue by the end of May. It sounded nice on the ears. Million dollar May. How I was gonna do this, I had no idea, but that's the beauty of the grand gesture. You find out what you're capable of fast. We were heading into April. That gave me two months to bring in one million dollars in new revenue. Well, May has come and May is gone. And I'm excited to tell you. We're in overtime. 
Now, to those of you in business who are howling, you can't do that, Cal. This isn't a sporting event. There's no crying in baseball and no overtimes in business. I'm here to tell you, oh, yes, I can. And the podcast you're about to hear proves me out. So bear with me. Bear with me. Give me a chance. This podcast is with Deet Meserve. She's one of the principals of an independent motion picture and television company called Wind Dancer Films. Deet has overseen projects that have brought in $4 billion in revenue, including Home Improvement, St. George with George Lopez, as well as movies like What Women Want and Good Sam, the last having been adapted from her own novel about a mysterious person who leaves $100,000 in bags on doorsteps. You can catch it now on Netflix. That's right, Deet is also a writer, and she recently published a nonfiction book with Rachel Greco called Random Acts of Kindness that goes straight to the heart. I had met with Dee to talk about that book and what she learned about kindness. We live in such a mean-spirited time, it seemed like an urgent theme. But near the middle of our conversation, our talk veered in an unexpected direction when we spoke about the balance between being a CEO and a writer. This is fabulous because <laughs> I'm somebody who was a writer for like 40 years and now I'm just becoming a CEO. Ah. And I thought I'm, I'm terrible at this. I have no idea how to be a CEO, but you're actually explaining to me that whatever tools or gifts I was using as a writer can be incorporated into me as the CEO. Completely. Because think about it. As a writer, you're problem-solving. That's a big part of whatever the story is. Well, those problem-solving skills apply here. You have characters saying things to each other to help explain things. You use those same skills as a CEO, as a person trying to run a company. You're just creating the story that you want your business to have. Right. Yes, exactly. Oh my God, we have an <laughs> epiphany here. That's when the fireworks flew. That was the million dollar thought I was searching for all along. That was more valuable to me than a million bucks in cold hard cash. Others could see what I was capable of in the business world up until that time, but I needed to understand what I had in myself, myself. It came at just the right moment. And you should know a little more of the story behind Million Dollar May before you make any judgments on, we're in overtime. In the last week of April, a close friend of mine became very ill and was hospitalized really knocked me off balance. Only now can I see how off balance because I stopped driving. Didn't want to be behind the wheel of a car while my mind was back in the hospital with my friend. One unintended consequence of this was every time I ordered my lift, I started to feel like a CEO. Wherever I was going, a driver was arriving to pick me up. It was an empowering time because a lot of deals were coming in. And yet, I wasn't completely engaged in charging toward a million bucks because a part of me was back at the hospital. When I could get to the hospital, I never felt guilty that I wasn't out chasing a million bucks. It was the other way around. I felt guilty when I was out trying to bring in the million and wasn't at the hospital with my friend. Well. Couldn't be at the hospital all the time because I'd made commitments to work with companies and I honored them and that was important because it was further proof that I could deliver everything I was promising. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs fake it till they make it. I'm not made of that cloth. I've been out proving what I'm capable of delivering and I've learned that I'm capable of way more than I thought and that I can bring companies even more value than I anticipated. And this is why. Back in May, I had the monk Dan Dapani on Big Questions. We spoke, 
about concentration, listen to what he said. I never knew how to concentrate. My whole life growing up, I couldn't concentrate. And people told me, Dandapani, concentrate. Dandapani, concentrate on doing your homework. Dandapani, concentrate on eating your food. Nobody ever told me how to. They just told me to concentrate. They never said how to. Do you, what instrument do you not play? I do not play the flute. Cal, play the flute. <laughs> no, I said play the flute. It's not fair, right? It's not fair for me to raise my voice and yell at you to play the flute. But how many times do you hear parents looking at their kids and go, for God's sakes, can you just focus for a second? And nobody taught him to focus. No, you're yelling at the kid, telling them to concentrate, but nobody teaches them how to. Nobody would argue that. Now take it one step further. To my knowledge, there are no classes in school that teach you how to better connect with people, how to ask more thoughtful questions, or how to articulate your stories. I can do those things. I can do them at a high level, and I can teach them. There are something like 22 million businesses in the United States that need those skills. And that doesn't count the rest of the world. I think my business is gonna do pretty good. While we didn't bring in exactly a million by May 31st, we got a long way toward our goal. And now that my friend's out of the hospital, recovering and cracking jokes as usual, I can fully engage to finish what we started here. So I believe overtime is a fair outcome. And besides, who don't like overtime? It's the best part of the game. One thing's for sure, you will never again hear me say I'm a terrible CEO. I know I'm gonna make mistakes. I know I'm gonna run up against unexpected obstacles. When I started, I had no idea how long it could take to complete a sale. Simply finalizing dates can take weeks, even months based on the company's needs. I can't begin to imagine what it's like to be a salesperson in an industry where it takes years to close a deal. Let me tell you something, whoever they are, those people are special. Last year, I did a podcast with Mick Ebeling of Not Impossible Labs. Mick's company has come up with a band that stops the shaking of people who are afflicted with Parkinson's disease. On that podcast, Mick promised to get those bands to big question listeners who know people with the disease. I just checked in with Mick and he told me they'll be ready to go out in December. To those who've written in for them, we'll get them to you then. Sometimes good things just take a while. I've learned a lot in Million Dollar May, but mostly about time, how precious it is, as well as how to build it into my business's goals. I've also learned that this business is what I'm meant to do on this earth. The more people I can assist, the more businesses that are lifted, and the more people who get hired, the more impactful my work will be. So if you know a company that could use assistance telling its authentic story, or in asking better questions, or making deeper connections, please let me know. After decades of keeping a low profile, I'm gonna start to put myself out there. That includes an Ask Me Anything appearance on Reddit this Thursday, June 6th. It'll be at 3 p.m. till about 9 p.m. Eastern time. Feel free to join, ask me anything you want about questions, connections, storytelling, that's at r slash I-M-A-M, capital A, subreddit, that's S-U-B-R-E-D-D-I-T. Never thought I'd say that, but that says I'm serious. Time to finish up and bring in that million. For now, let's get straight to Deep Meserve. We are rolling here. And Deet is going back to her old radio days. She's got the headphones on. She's wearing her sportsy hoodie. 
feeling mighty comfortable here. You bet. With a beautiful view of Los Angeles beneath us. Yeah. And the Hollywood sign and Griffith uh, Park Observatory, not too far away either. Well, let's talk about random acts of kindness. Let's definitely talk about it. Um, that book, um, which I have across the room here, in case you want to borrow a copy of it, has been a true labor of love, Cal. I'm just so excited that it's out there now, and the response to it has just been phenomenal. Super excited to share it with your audience today. How did you come upon the idea to do a book about random acts of kindness? Do you know what's really crazy is that it really seems so obvious to me, like one of those flashes of like every author sort of hopes for that moment. But I had written Good Sam, which is my very first novel. And Good Sam is the story about an anonymous Good Samaritan who's leaving $100,000 cash on LA doorsteps. But it was fiction. It was a reporter's search for a question I was asking myself, which was, does good exist? Do good people exist? And if they do good, are they doing it for ulterior motives, for publicity, for other reasons to bring attention to themselves? Or could there be someone doing good without any expectation? Pure good without any expectation of anything coming out of it. Exactly. And so I wrote the book as fiction, curious about that very same thing. And in the process of releasing the book, I then went on my own journey unexpectedly, because then I started seeing stories about what I would call real life Good Samaritans, people who were doing acts big and small um, for others. And I would reach out to them and say, I think you're a good Sam, and then start a dialogue with them. And I realized, first of all, I admire these strangers probably more than anybody. So Brad Pitt could come into my office and I'd be like, hey, nice to meet you. But Kathy O'Grady, who's the layaway angel, would come in and I met her and I just felt like I met a kindred spirit, almost like a special person because she's Who somebody. Who is the layaway yeah. angel? <laughs> right? Uh, Kathy O'Grady um, goes to Walmarts and Kmarts on the East Coast. She's based in Boston and pays off people's layaway balances right before Christmas. Tens of thousands of dollars anonymously. And at first it was anonymous and they were the media was calling her the layaway angel. And then she eventually got discovered that it was her. But she wasn't stopping at that. She was also doing things like leaving out blankets in Boston parks uh, with notes that say, you know, this blanket's not lost. Somebody loves you, you know, take it and keep it for yourself. She was doing these amazing things because this kindness was just a lifestyle for her. And that's what I started discovering. And I thought, wow, through story, through these people's stories, we might be able to inspire people that they could do this themselves. There's never in the book a single time when we say you should do this, but we wanted through story to kind of go through all of the possibilities that might go through your mind. Like, well, I can't do it because I'm poor or I'm too rich or I'm young or I'm too old or I live in the farm or I live in a city. We have stories throughout the book that really look at people who are doing big things, small things, no matter who they are. And I think by illuminating that, by celebrating that, we start to really inspire people that, you know, a small act can make a big difference. What's the smallest act that caught your attention and made you say, I got to write about this? The smallest act in the book, believe it or not, it sounds like it's small, but there was a young nine-year-old boy named Jeremy Bourdois, and he gave up his birthday party because he wanted to do a birthday party for the police. And he wondered if police were still good. And his mom assured him that most police are good. We hear about sometimes bad policemen, but police are still good. But he really admired them. And so it was like, I'm just going to give up my birthday party and instead give the money to the police. And then it became something 
far, far bigger. And that's what we see over and over in these stories is that some small act leads to something far bigger that you never expected. The birthday party that he ended up giving up ended up being attended by 200 policemen. He ended up making friends. He he was able to raise all this money for the police. And um, he'd been experiencing some bullying at school. And, and nobody was going to bully him no, anymore. <laughs> they were actually, he says in the book, Look, they were asking for my autograph, the kids that used to bully him. So it really changed him in a way he did never expected. Like, just, I'm going to give up my birthday party, whatever you're going to spend on that, give it to the police. And now his life has changed forever. A little tiny thing can make a big difference. Wow. What was the biggest thing? I shouldn't say biggest because it sounds like all these are huge in their own way. Yeah. But, but for you, what hit you where you saw the ripples go out the farthest. Yeah, there's a couple in the book. There's a section called Kindness Movements, and I really feel like they all started small. It became big. Kathy O'Grady is one year after year. She does phenomenal things. She has a foundation now called Sophia's Angels and sort of people around the country who aid her, like Charlie's Angels, uh, in doing good deeds of kindness. But another story that really struck me is right here in L.A., um, a friend of mine, she actually is a friend that I've known for quite some time, she got a phone call from uh, someone who had aged out of foster care and needed a couch for his new apartment. And he, she thought, he thought that she might be able to help him because she had been in interior design. And so she said, oh, okay, I'll help him. And she went and found like a used couch and saw his situation, saw that all his belongings were in garbage bags. And she said, I'm gonna do something about this. And now today, my friend is Georgie Smith. She's been a CNN Hero nominee two years ago. She's founded A Sense of Home, which is a nonprofit organization based in LA. They've done over 400 homes. And every weekend they go, and uh, kids that age out of foster care don't have a support system like a, a, other kids might have. So they go and set up a home. It's beautifully decorated, so it truly feels like a home. And then they've created a community around it, too. It's not just, here's your home, and we'll see you later. It's, if you've gotten a home, now you come to the next homecoming. And all these volunteers and people who've gotten a home before create this beautiful environment. The videos themselves of people like playing guitars and singing and welcoming and talking about their own experience before and after joining this community will, like, bring you to tears. And then you realize it started again with one simple phone call and her answering that call. It's sort of like the hero's journey, right? Joseph Campbell talks about that one call that we all will hope we get in our lifetime or many times. And if you answer it, your whole life can change. Now her life is completely changed and they're taking this model and uh, replicating it around the country and maybe around the world in a way that, she, and it, she's changed by it too. And that's really the key here, Cal. In every single story, and that was the lens that Rachel and I, uh, Rachel's the journalist I wrote the book with, we really wanted to write it through the lens of transformation of the giver. The recipient we know is going to be changed. If I paid off your layaway balance, you're going to be ecstatic. You're going to be wonderfully happy. We all know that. We always want to illuminate that. But it's the giver that's changed. It's we that are changed by the act. And that's what each one of these stories over and over shows you. Are these stories like around you all the time? But then when you say, I want to do this book, all of a sudden they just appear to you. You've been walking by them for maybe for years, but now that you're aware, they're everywhere. Yes. That's the thing I tell people about their discovery of this. I started a Facebook group called Random Acts of Kindness Book, and I asked them within a few weeks, because now everybody can post these stories, not just me. For the longest time on social media, be like me, and readers would send me things, message me, email, my phone would just ding all day long, and I would post them, but I would sort of choose and curate them, and then I was like, that could be a full-time job. So I created another group, and I asked 
them, you know, post your own stuff in this group and get response to it. Within a couple of weeks, I, I did a little one of those polls and I said, do you think the kindness, are you surprised by how much kindness is out there? And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. And overwhelmingly, people were saying that they also were discovering more of it on their own, that once you discover it, it's almost like it's everywhere. And you're like, how did I not see it? For me, I had so many readers sending me stories. And I felt like I was a kind of, I still feel like I live in a bubble. Because when I wake up and look at my phone, I'm not seeing whatever latest crazy stories happening in the White House or any of that drama. The first thing that's in my phone is, hey, did you see this story about that classroom or that school that translated the yearbook into Braille for one child that is blind? That's how I start my day. And that gives me hope and inspiration and a feeling of positivity. And then I'd like, I just have all those stories. And the hardest thing in this book was choosing which ones to put in. Because we could write 50 of these books. We've got 100 of them. So we're trying to figure out, okay, we're going to pick 25 stories to start with. How should we illuminate that? And our hope is, like, we'll now get to do random acts of kindness, you know, all about kids or all about people oh, with dogs. chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, dogs is going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do that one first. <laughs> So what does this do to your life because you, you're just having kindness overwhelm you uh, throughout the day? Yeah, all day long, into the night, into the morning, first thing I see, last thing I see at night is kindness. I'm writing about kindness. I'm in the midst right now of writing the third book in the Kate Bradley story uh, mystery series uh, for Lake Union Publishing. That's all about kindness in a different way. So I live it. And uh, so you live in a world of kindness. What do you not watch the news because that might burst through it? Yeah, I I know people think I'm really strange because I haven't seen an episode of Game of Thrones, and I'm not proud of that. You're in TV. <laughs> exactly. I'm not proud of it. I've seen clips, so I know enough. <laughs> I know, like, who might be some of the main characters. I know enough. But, yeah, I do stay away from it. For one thing, I don't have time if I'm trying to make a bunch of TV and be an author and a mom and a CEO of my own company. There isn't a lot of time to watch TV. But I do stay away from things that are disturbing, and here's why. I'm not saying that I should be like uh, an ostrich and ignore reality, right? I get it that a million animals are facing extinction. I know that, right? That I understand I need to know because I have some role in it. But a lot of what we watch, we don't really need to know. It's not going to affect our lives. We're not going to do anything about it. It's just going to make us more anxious, more fearful, more distrustful. So I stay away from that stuff. But I think also when it comes to entertainment, I think entertainment programs our brains. It is a form of programming. When you read a book, you're programming your brain to understand about others. And so if I'm watching a bunch of people kill each other, I'm programming my brain to think that that's normal. And all this stuff about, oh, it's just entertainment, well, okay, maybe for you. For me, I don't think that there's a big difference. If I watch five movies about people being kind to each other, I'm going to be more kind, and there's research to back me up on that. UC Berkeley did a study that showed that if you see kindness, you're more likely to be kind. If you view somebody opening the door for someone, you're more likely to be kind. And you think, like, what, we're all just, like, watching people kill each other, rape each other, murder, all of those things, serial cannibalization, oh, that's just all entertainment? I don't believe that. I think it's fine in moderation, just like eating sugar, you know? Like, I don't say I'm never going to eat ice cream. I just think that we have way too much ice cream in our diet and that we wonder why we're anxious and, and distrustful of other people, that we feel divided. It's because we watch a lot of stuff that promotes those values and that we don't watch enough or read enough about the real thing that makes us human, which is our, our connection to each other. Okay, you're in TV you're in movies. Why isn't there a kindness channel? Well, 
if there are any investors that would like to come talk to me, I am so with you. In my mind, like, why isn't there a kindness, like, uh, entire, like, news magazine? Because there's certainly at least that. But, you know... You know, we were brought up, I went to journalism school, that, well, the it's the bad stuff that should make the news. When, when the kind stuff makes the news, it tells you how bad the situation is. <laughs> exactly, right? But listening to what you're saying and knowing of some experiments that I heard about, like people who pull up to a toll booth, uh, and this must have been years back because there were people in the toll booth. Oh, right. And they would pay not only for themselves, but for the person behind them. And then when the next person drove up, the person in the toll would say, hey, it's already taken care of. That person that just drove, drove away, they took care of you. And they would then pay for the person behind them. So right. I know what you're saying. Yeah, we also exists. see that at Starbucks. There's, I think, the longest chain, and someone in your audience will probably correct me on the number, but it's over like 300 people in line in a Starbucks who paid for the person behind them. And I, you know, you think about that, like one after another, after another, after another. When you've received kindness, you're more likely to feel the need to be kindness. And it is that connection that's made humanity flourish up until now. It's understanding that you're not separate from me. We're all woven together and by one common thread. And it doesn't take much, $3 to buy you a coffee, but for me to feel good too. There's also research that shows that we get a dopamine rush. The same thing that we get from playing a video game or maybe when being somebody a, is kind to us, we yes, get a dopamine rush. Better when we're kind to someone. Oh, so go out there man. today. That's what I did as an experiment with uh, with some of my readers. I gave, I'd gotten a speaking fee. It was two hundred dollars for to speaking to a writers conference, and I was like, I didn't expect it. I'm just going to give $20 to 10 people. I'm going to pick them from all around the country. And I gave them each $20. And I asked them to come back and tell me how they feel about it or what that felt like to be able to use. And it's only $20. Not everybody has reported back because not everybody's done the thing. But the four of the 10 that have, overwhelmingly, they're like, I felt good all day. I felt lifted all day. I felt better about myself and about the world. You get a dopamine rush when you help someone. Now, when I say help someone, people immediately think I'm talking about, oh, there's the homeless guy on the corner. That is one form of helping. It's not the only way. It can be a set of flowers to a neighbor who you know as getting over the flu. It can be writing a note to um, the person down the street who's suffering because of something else that happened, or just a note thinking of you. Somebody left for me, and I had was having a regular day, somebody left some flowers on my doorstep with no note. I still remember that day as being one of the most profound days. First of all, I was texting a bunch of friends. Oh, like, did you somebody <laughs> left the flowers. Were you, were you married at the time? Yes. Or, oh, okay. <laughs> and the husband claimed he didn't. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, who did it? <laughs> yeah. And they weren't like roses with a I love you, secret admirer thing. It was it was just flowers. And I thought, well, what, why am I lifted by that receipt? And then I was like, if I'm lifted by that receipt, what would it feel like if I did the same thing? So I did, not with those flowers, another set of flowers. To a random person in my neighborhood, I never fessed up that it was me, but I loved that feeling. I knew I brightened their day because I knew what it felt like. And that's a profound feeling. And it takes just a little bit of time, not very much money. It wasn't that this was a grand bouquet. It was the idea behind it of giving something to someone to brighten their day. I think it's overwhelmingly good for your soul to be the giver. How does this kindness affect your life as the CEO? <laughs> well, uh, 
around here, sometimes people will hear me say, well, no good deed goes unpunished. And then I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's reverse that. Because the reality is in business, you try to do something nice or you do something that you think is ethical, moral, the right thing. And sometimes you don't get that back. That's the way business works. And so sometimes it can be really frustrating for me to be like, okay, why don't I just be honest with this person about what we're going to do and be fully transparent and be, you know, fully kind and understanding of their situation. And sometimes it comes back to bite you. And that can be really hard to take because my sort of ethical moral system is like, if you get back what you get. You, you're expecting, hey, I paid for your Starbucks coffee, <laughs> so it should be passed on right. somehow. And you feel like if you put out that good energy that you'll get that back, right. but that isn't reality. It happen in Hollywood. Not in Hollywood. No, <laughs> definitely not in Hollywood. But I do feel like that that just strengthens your resolve because you're like, I'm not going to let that thing change the essence of what I think is true. That person, that incident doesn't shape the whole world. It's one incident. So you kind of put it over there. And Do you ever look, send those people one of your books? Just <laughs> nice gesture. Don't even let them. It's, yes, like, exactly. it's like sending the flowers without even putting your name to it. You know, Cal, that's a brilliant idea. I'm going <laughs> to steal it from you. <laughs> Next time a deal goes sour, I'll just be like, okay, well, let's come back to that. And then I'll just email them a copy, a Kindle copy. You can do that very easily through Amazon. I might try that. I never thought about using it for that, but it might be a way to loosen people up or make them see what's important. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what is important is, you know, being kind to people. And it sounds like so, somebody, a friend of mine who runs another company, she's like, oh, that sounds so softy. That's so sweet. It feels like flowers and, you know, for kids and puppies and things like that. I'm like, I, I don't think so, because when you even look in the business world at what are the roots of innovation, productivity, creativity, there's studies that show that one of the key things is trust within an, empl uh, an employer. And where are the seeds of trust and kindness? If like I you come into the office and I'm like, hey, jerk, get out of here, you don't trust that. But if every day, I'm kind to you. I maybe bring you a coffee occasionally, and I'm picking on that. Or maybe I bring you flowers or or do something for you. There's a trust there. It says, I see you. I say, you're a human being. We're here together. And those are the seeds for everything that we want to accomplish in business. It's not just for kids and puppies. It's really about who we are as human beings, as creative human beings, as business people. It's the essence of all of it for me. And so when anyone tries to make it, ah, it's over here in the soft thing. You know, give me the show about cannibalism. Give me the show <laughs> give about... Me the show about <laughs> cannibalism. <Yeah. laughs> You've actually heard that on the phone? No, not on the, on the phone. But uh, just a funny story. Um, there is a show, Santa Clarita Diet, that I guess maybe has not gotten renewed by Netflix. I am not here to speak for Netflix or not. But they were putting out the trailer for Good Sam, the movie that's based on my first novel that's coming out May 16th. And they... Um, on the on the social media post was like bring back so you know bring back Santa Clarita diet who cares about good Sam no so you know I don't let people troll me usually and people don't troll somebody who's writing about kindness but my daughter who's 13 years old is like mom why are you on that post and I'm like well because I want people to realize that's not really fair like you might want Santa Clarita diet back, but it doesn't mean that you should in the meantime, like kick the dog, so to speak. I see like a lot of that in this industry of like, well, I'm unhappy about this. So I'm going to make a, you know, I'm going to kick something else. It's like somebody hits your car and then you go kick yeah, the dog. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of what you're trying to do exactly. with kindness. So then I would write a few people. I'm like, really, no one cares about good Sam. I think you might be overstating and like, deep reserve. That was a joke. And I was like, well, that's not really jokey. Like, I don't think a joke is funny unless it's funny. And so we have we've mistaken the idea that like anybody can just be snarky and rude to each other. And we're supposed to accept it because it's under this umbrella of funny. But funny is subjective. And if I don't think it's funny, it 
doesn't, it's not funny to me. And just because you think that. I think a lot of people hide behind a lot of anger, a lot of hate, a lot of snarkiness, and a lot of fear because they're scared of, you know, connection with other people. So it's easier to go, no one cares about good Sam or, or to bash something than it is to show vulnerability and say, I care about you. I want something good to happen to you. That feels too soft. Let's, let's have a show about cannibalism or about a serial killer. Let's focus on that because that's, then we can hide. We can hide our vulnerabilities. And that's, to me, I'm like, I'm not going to let you bash good Sam because you want a show about cannibalism. You can have both. There are so many possibilities <laughs> here, but you don't get to say you want a show about cannibalism so you don't get a show about goodness. So when one of these deals goes south on you as the CEO, do you still want to like kick the wall or do, are you wanting to get your anger out in some visceral way? Or does this kindness kind of flow through you and mellow you out. It buoys you during the roughest times because you know you can come back to it. You can read about what other people are doing and you can actually do something. So instead of like punching the wall. You'll do you something kind. Do something kind. Send somebody at random a copy of the book. Not necessarily the person who's just done you the harm, which is like a, not a bad idea, but um, do something kind. Try to Go focus on that and every that energy. I wonder what would happen if every time you felt slighted or something didn't go your way, you said, all right, I'm going to go do something kind for somebody. I wonder how that would change the way you see the world. I think I, I strive for that. I can't say that I'm like superwoman in that respect, but I strive for that. And I do find that it gets you through the rougher points because you can deflect that negative energy into something positive and make a change to someone else's life and focus on that and that feeling instead of the like, achy, burning, you know, mistrustful feeling. Yeah, this, this is really powerful advice here. What about your kids? When they see you going in this direction, do they follow? Yeah, my, my youngest is 13. And because of this, like, for example, she'd see the guys that are on Hollywood Boulevard with a puppy and then be like, oh, mom, we have to help them because that was surely obvious to her. Right. And so for her, it was an opportunity. And also they know I don't walk by people. Very rarely do I walk by somebody and not do something. I kind of feel like I need to walk the talk, even though I know all the reasons why I shouldn't give to the homeless person. I always feel like if I can ease their pain a little bit and see them, that I'm making some difference. So they kind of follow along with that. My daughter was amazed me. Um, last June, oh, July, our house burned, not as part of the big fires, but just a, an internal fire oh, in I'm the sorry. walls. Yeah, and we were... Did it, the house burn down? Or not the all the way to the ground, but it was really traumatic. Um, and my daughter was getting ready to have her bat mitzvah, and she had collected all of these small toiletry items, and they all got destroyed in the fire. And so a week after the fire, we're still living in a hotel room. We barely have any clothes that we can wear because everything either went up in smoke or smells of smoke. And she's like, can we go to the dollar store? I want to buy some things in the dollar store and make some kits for to give away through this food pantry so that people have toothbrushes and things like that. And I saw it, you know, she didn't wow, realize she it at the moment. But she lost her home for a while. But it gave her peace, some kind of sense of purpose. And I took pictures, it's on the hotel floor, like all this stuff is on, on there. I'm literally like, we have not slept and we're going to the 99 cent store on Fairfax and picking out this toothbrush is better than that one, these toiletries are better. And there was something about that, about thinking about what other people might need that helped take away our own sort of suffering about what we had lost. And it was really, um, really, really emotional because we lost our cat and oh. she did not make it out. You can't replace a cat. You can't really deal with that grief in any 
meaningful way, but I feel like in a way it kind of healed us all. And so then the older brother who was a little more cynical, teenager at the time, was like, oh, I'll help you bag these things up. And I felt like it just gave everybody a purpose, right, of doing something to sort of deal with the loss, deal with that grief that could transform us. And it did, not forever. It's not like, oh, now I've done this, now I'm past that my house burned down. But it certainly did in the moment, and it made us feel good. And so I feel like if we can see this as a coping mechanism and look for opportunities to keep doing that, we might be able to, you know, make a our own lives better in the process. Does this have to be random or can it be pinpointed? I I have to say I don't like the word random random in random acts of kindness. And originally I just wanted to call it acts of kindness, but just felt like that that title didn't have the resonance of, we all say random. And you'll see even in my social media, I'll never use the word random acts of kindness. I'll be like, that person's a good Sam, or look how much light or hope this person has brought in the world. I hate the idea of randomness because that just sounds like, well, today I'll just randomly run and do something. I do think there is a value for random, and I want to talk about one group that does random acts of kindness. But in general, I think we need to be focused for acts of kindness because the randomness is really hard for us to actually do. But this one group, I'm so excited because uh, two of them are actually coming here for the Good Sam premiere, and they're coming from Utah. Uh, there, um, they've started an organization as a result of this called Fill My Basket. And what they do is they go into grocery stores. They don't evaluate whether you are needy, rich, poor, sad, happy, whatever, and they just pay for your groceries. They jump in line, they have a credit card, they swipe it, the grocery store knows all about it, so nobody, no security guards tackle them as they're jumping in line. And what they find over and over is even if you're there and you don't look like you're poor and you're not tear-stained, almost everyone's going through something. They're struggling with disease or a loss or a sadness. Not everyone's just walking through life, even if they look like they are, with just no problems. And so when they talk to the people after the kindness and they are, are videotaping them, over and over you see people saying things like, how could you have known that I really needed something like this today? I really needed something to lift my spirits. And it wasn't about the I can't afford groceries all the time. It was about somebody saw them. Somebody took care of them for a moment and made them feel special made them feel seen. And that's why they make it random. They don't go through the grocery store and go, okay, that person has a bank account with $500, so I'm not going to help them. They truly are random. They did, for the launch of Random Acts of Kindness, they actually did it live on uh, Facebook with me, and I got to see it unfold. And I thought when I first saw the woman being helped, I'm like, well, I wonder what her story is. She seems to be fine. She doesn't seem like she's poor or homeless or disabled or elderly. And of course, like all surprises, here she is talking about how meaningful this was to her, how she'd been having a rough week, a a rough month. And I thought, we just never know. We never know who it is that is suffering. And if we do it randomly, you may you may end up helping the richest person in the world that just won the lottery. But chances are you're probably going to help somebody in some way you can't even imagine. What has this book done for the way you see the future? Do you, do you look at all of your new projects in a different way because you're seeing it through a glow of kindness? In a way, for me, the biggest thing that had started to happen to me, but it's made me more resolved, is that when you put your energy behind something that you really care about, that's important to you, that's like part of your core purpose, that is what you want to say, you can see the results of that. So I realized that all of us have that in our life, not just me, you do, everyone does. Like, what are we going to prioritize? Do I really want to prioritize this project over there? What does it say that I feel like is critical to be said? And if it doesn't, then I probably shouldn't 
do it because there are too many important things that I could focus my attention on that could make a difference. And so having that feeling of random acts of kindness, the response to it has been just like, I told my husband, I'm like, I've never had a book that has like got so many, you know, high ratings. All my books are well reviewed, but like after uh, several weeks, there's always somebody who has like some cynical comment of like, well, I thought it was boring or whatever, right? All of us authors, we know that. But in this case, really does somebody read random acts of kindness and go, yeah, not for me. I mean, they just don't, they're changed by it. And I realized if I can do acts of kindness with a book, which we're doing, and if I can encourage others to do it, then I want to stay in that space. That's much better than doing a thriller about people killing each other. So let me focus on that. may not be like lining my pocketbook in the same way of making, you know, some big bad adventure where people are murdering and and doing mayhem, but it feels a hundred million times better. Do you consider yourself more a writer or a CEO? Oh, my God. (laughs) Cal, that's a really good question. It depends on the hour of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like morning one way, afternoon another, or does it vary? I am really not a writer. I have too many shows going, and I'm really that person. And so somebody will talk to me as the writer. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's here. But during the day, the work hour days. Um, so like, give me an example. What's your work day like? Oh, my God. The day starts for me really early because we have um, contacts in UK and uh, overseas. So, so they're like, what, nine hours ahead eight, or eight hours yeah. ahead? So okay. you're getting emails from them early in the morning. Also, a lot of New York, D.C. contacts who, by the time I'm looking at my phone, say, at 7 a.m., it's already they've already been working for hours. So my focus during the day is largely on the business. And I can't really write, obviously, because I'm going from meeting to meeting, pitch meeting, meeting with writers, in production, all of that. So I really kind of try to focus that energy from the time I get up until that day is over on that. Because if I try to bring the writing into it, I'll want to do that a lot. And you can't just do it in 15-minute increments. You have to really immerse yourself into it. So So when do you get to do the writing? Well, It's been harder because my daughter is 13 and she doesn't go to bed early like she used to. She's going to bed at 9. So I would literally at 9 o'clock be putting her to bed. Maybe I'd read her something I had been writing or preparing, sort of to prepare myself to write. And then I'd write for two hours every night until After a full work day. Yeah. You know why? Because all day long, I think of it this way, I'm working with creators, brilliant people, smart people, fun people. And we're engaging in this collaborative process of making stuff. It's like lifting weights all day long. And then now you get to write by yourself. You're like, I'm strong. I know ideas. I've, I've experienced things during the day that this I can bring into it. wild. <laughs> no. The, the, a, being a CEO actually is like a fountain for being for a writer. Sure. It so is. For exactly. Because what is the intense nature of story. To me, one of the cores is intention conflict, intention conflict. So you're putting your character, she wants this or he wants that, and then they have a conflict. That's story, right? You want this thing and you can't have it. These steps have to be made in order for you to get it, or are you ever going to get it at all? Well, what's the story of anybody who's running a company? Intention, conflict, intention, conflict. You have conflict. I don't mean conflict like you're fighting with people or screaming or anything, but everything's in conflict. And so you can mine those feelings that you have and put them into a character in a different setting, and they still resonate. So if somebody wants something and they can't have it, and you've just experienced that in your day, then you can put that into your writing. And even though they're completely different roles, I'm writing about a reporter in the case of the latest book, Kate Bradley, has nothing to do with my life. I'm not 
all day long chasing a story, but there are commonalities. And so I use those. And I also use listening to how other people talk and how they think through things to understand that we could all look at the same, say, water bottle and see it differently and hear how other people talk, how they sort of process and make decisions helps me as a writer then to use that in characters to say, well, that's not how she would see it. That's, she might see it this way. This is fabulous. <laughs> because I'm somebody who was a writer for like 40 years, and now I'm just becoming a CEO. Ah. And I thought, I'm, I'm terrible at this. I have no idea how to be a CEO. But you're actually explaining to me that whatever tools or gifts I was using as a writer can be incorporated into me as the CEO. Completely. Because think about it, as a writer, you're problem solving. That's a big part of whatever the story is. Well, that's those problem solving skills apply here. You have characters saying things to each other to help explain things. You use those same skills as a CEO, as a person trying to run a company. You're just creating the story that you want your business to have. Right. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. We have an <laughs> epiphany here. Oh. And what is your story? You think about it. When you sat down to write a, a book, you're like, who's my main character? What does he or she want? What are their values? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Those are the same things that you do with a company. What is it about? What is the company I'm creating? What is it about? What is its strengths? What is its weaknesses? What does it want? What does it want that's going to help them? What are the things that are going to stop them? It's just a story. We're all living in stories. Why do so many companies have trouble telling their stories? You know, that's a really good question. I am listening to a masterclass with Howard Schultz right now. I don't know if there's a, an app called Masterclass, and I love it because that's how I get myself to go to the gym because being at the gym isn't that fun. But if you get to listen to Howard Schultz or Margaret Atwood, I listen to them, and I'm like, these things are long, so I can stay on that treadmill of elliptical <laughs> longer and feel like I'm doing two things. And, and I listen to someone like Howard, and I'm like, oh, he's really figured it out because he understands his company, at least, you know, from the outside, appears to be guided by strong values. He wants to create a community within his organization that then those values are expressed outside, you know, to you, the consumer. And I'm like, why aren't all companies? Like, look at Apple. They're a perfect example of some kind of aspect of design and a way of thinking that permeates the whole company. I think it's hard to do when it gets to be really big because you've got a lot of human beings and a lot of cultures and a lot of thoughts and direction that how do you get people to all want to go the same way? So for me as an independent film producer and TV producer, we're dealing with much smaller groups, right? You're you're not dealing with tens of thousands of people that you're trying to manage with this one thing. You know, I'm doing a show called Ready, Jet, Go for PBS. At the height of it here in L.A., we had maybe 30 people. That's not hard to create a culture where everybody's sort of focused in on the same thing. It gets harder if that's 30,000 or 300,000 because then you're really trying to get people to buy into a culture and an idea that may be not why they're there in the first place. I'm just thinking back now to a time where I was interviewing Howard Schultz and he was telling me how he had seen this movie, Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder. Yeah. And he then, years later, summoned in some people from the office and he played them this movie because he wanted to start a Starbucks flagship and make it look like the Willy Wonka <laughs> factory. And it's there in Seattle. You can go to it now. And... Everything you're saying has just flashed light bulbs across my brain because here I am thinking, oh, I have n no skills or attachments to being a CEO. 
And now I'm seeing that if I just treat this like a story, I can do this. Right. What is a story that you want your company to experience? And and you have to recognize, like in all stories, it's not going to be a straight line or a linear line up to the top. It's going to have... It's going to be filled with obstacles and overcoming the obstacles, right. which is what makes the story great. Right. And if there are no obstacles, who wants to read that story? <laughs> How can there be a transformation? Yeah. Right. And so that's really what you have to think about is what is what are those things and and who are the people you're going to bring along on your story, right? We all think about that. Like if you're going on the grand adventure with Lord of the Rings, you bring along a certain people to look for those rings, Oh, right? my God. They're like <laughs> characters that I want to put in the, the book or the movie. Right. Or in your company to go on that adventure with me. A really smart executive said to me, like when you're picking like a showrunner for a show, she goes, who do you want to be in the trenches with? And I was like, do you mean like warfare, like trenches? And then I realized she doesn't really mean that, but like, who do you want to go on this adventure with? And who are you going to need? Each thing needs a little bit of something different because you may have somebody who's sort of the guiding spirit and the warrior, but this project needs somebody who's more of the, the statistician or the the strategist. Yeah, it could so, be somebody who's like really boring yeah, and exactly. never wants to be on camera, always behind the scenes, but is going to remind you of everything that you're, she, she or he knows you're going to forget. Right. So who do you need on the journey? What obstacles do you think are ahead? How might you overcome oh, man. them? Write if your I story. I just think of this like a story. Yeah. It's going to be completely comfortable and make it fun. And funny, right, too? Because there's going to be moments along the road where you're going to be like, well, that's not what I expected to happen. But you get back on it if you're with the right people. Everybody's a character. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is beautiful. You know, I, I came in here just wanting to know about kindness, and you've done the kindest thing for me. <laughs> See, you never know what somebody needs. It's a perfect example, too. You don't ever know. I didn't yeah, think I came I'm in here. Gonna... You didn't know I just became a CEO of a company. No. One halfway into my life. Have no idea where this is going. And now you've just say, well, you make it go the way you want it to go because you're creating your own story. Right. I had no idea about that, but like I believe that most of us don't realize that we have gifts that we can give to others. We think, oh, well, you know, like we have almost need an invitation for it, but I'm always getting gifts from other people, even if it's just understanding their life or understanding their perspective on something. That's a gift. It can help me shape me. I remember talking to somebody, uh, he was cutting my hair and he was talking to me about, he was starting a new line, a, a brand new line of, of hair shampoos. And I was like, Okay, so he's telling me that. It's really exciting. I'm not interested in creating shampoos. But I was like, what would I want to create? And it made me ask that question. What would I want to create? This was long before I published a single book. What would be that thing that he's talking about that excites him so much? Is there something in my life? that I could find. So I think we're all inspiration for each other in small ways. I even thanked him after the book came out. I'm like, you know, you were talking about shampoos. And I realized I really wanted something. I didn't know what it was at the moment, but by listening to you talking about these shampoos and these things that were going to be on Target shelves, I thought there's something I, there's something I want to contribute. I don't know what it is yet, but I then figured it out. And five books later, I'm I'm super glad that he inspired me. So we never know where we're going to find inspiration or gifts. And I think it's really important that that's what we need is human in, and, and interconnection to really achieve our full selves. Well, I am so grateful we have connected because this conversation has changed my life. I'm walking out of here a different person. Wow. I am the CEO. <laughs> See, now I'm going to be lifted all day knowing I made a small difference or big difference. Oh, this is a, <laughs> wait till you see the ripples that are coming. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It makes me very happy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. This was a blast. You changed my life. Thank you and cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. 
that about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. If it wasn't for Tim and this podcast, I wouldn't be doing a storytelling workshop in Munich, Germany on July 5th and 6th. If you'd like to come learn how to best articulate your company's story, your customer story, your product story, or your own story, go to cokecreate.com for information. That's C-O-K-R-E-A.com. Or you can email me. Let's get together in Munich and drink some great beer together. I want to thank my sponsors for bringing this podcast to you. I'm in my sporty hoodie as I speak these words because my sporty hoodie makes me feel great comfort, which gives me confidence. See what I mean at sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And use the offer code CAL for 20% off. And 20% off office space around the world. Check out WeWork. My global access pass makes me feel at home wherever I go. And it'll make you feel at home too. Go to www.we.co slash CAL and get that 20% discount that will make you feel good and me too. Next week, you'll hear from one of the latest inductees in the Advertising Hall of Fame because I got to learn to get my message out there. The sooner people hear what I'm doing, the sooner we'll hit that million-dollar goal. It's overtime, which means it's time to bring out my best game. Cheers!